Well, I want to say hi to all of you folks joining us from Quakertown, and I want to welcome you. And before we proceed, I want to say thank you to all of you for Easter weekend. You all came through. Let me explain it this way. We asked you to serve at a service, to participate in a service, and invite people to come. We had well over 400 volunteers in different places, inside, outside, upside, downside, serving as hosts to all of our guests. And so on behalf of all of those ministry leaders and staff members, thank you for your service and volunteering. Also, many of you, yeah, thank you. Also, I think most of you here, unless you were traveling or something, you all participated in a service. I met a few people that served at a few services and never got into a service. We told them to go online and watch. But, but most of you were able to participate. And you also invited family members, friends, neighbors, acquaintances. And for our Easter Saturday, Sunday service, we had about 6,400 people attend Souderton in Quakertown. Uh, I think that's probably our biggest Easter set of services ever. And I do want to remind you all, our goal is not to fill auditoriums or put lots of butts in seats. That's not our goal. Our goal is to continue what Jesus started by helping people understand how Jesus needs to affect their lives and how he can change and transform their lives. And so as we all interact with people living out the gospel and as we invite them to come and share a service with us, that process goes on of continuing what Jesus started and you all came through. Thank you for Easter weekend. It's not over. We need to continue doing those things week by week. But I did want to say thanks. Well, we're starting a new series today called Reality Check. And why are we doing a series on Reality Check? Oh, think of it like this. We live in a world of fake news, spin, and misunderstanding. Isn't that right? We live in a world of misinformation. Sometimes it's intentionally misleading. Other times it's just out of ignorance that people are sharing fake news. So we're going to kind of look at some of the basic facets of life and give you a reality check. Help you understand what is really actually true in the midst of all of that fluff and all of that misunderstanding and all of that misinformation out there. Well, where do we start? Well, we're going to start at the very basic level and we're going to do a reality check on Christianity. What exactly is this thing called Christianity? And you're probably all sitting here, Charles, I know this stuff. You're going to waste like 30 minutes. To, you need to hear it again. And if you do have a good understanding of what Christianity is, we're glad you're here. You need to remind yourself of it. Even as Andrew said this morning and as we sang this morning, what do we really need? We don't need new things. We need to remind ourselves of the old things. But you need to make sure you understand clearly what the old things really are. I googled. Uh, online and just tried to figure out by going online doing a couple searches what information's out there misinformation out there concerning Christianity and I want to clear up a few things as we get started first of all Christianity is not all about politics um, there are really good followers of Jesus believe it or not in both political parties you may find that absolutely hard to believe, depending on your affiliation, but there are people deeply involved in politics on both sides of the aisle, and in between those two polar opposites, 
trying to live out their faith in those places, and you can hold a political opinion different from somebody else's, and you can still be following Jesus. Christianity is not all about politics. Secondly, Christianity is not all about prosperity. I'm not sure if you watch late night TV, but if you watch a lot of late night TV and you turn the preachers on, you'd begin to think, oh, I get it. So if I take a check and treat it as my little seed, and I plant the seed by sending it to you, then God will somehow nurture that seed, and I'll get a windfall of a harvest coming back in my... Christianity's not all about prosperity. Christianity is not blind faith. You know, you go online and you read different things and people say, oh, yeah, yeah, okay, you're going to be a Christian. You just have to check your IQ or check your brain at the door. Here's what Christianity is. Stop believing in evidence. Stop believing in rationality. And just blindly say, do what the Bible says and what your preacher says. Christianity is not blind faith. Last week we talked about just a couple of the evidences for what we believe. There really are evidences for the faith. God says to us, the Bible calls us, to examine what's going on. Look at what's going on. Examine these things to be true. Now, are there things that we're not going to understand? Sure there are. And we need to trust God in those things. After all, God is infinite. Are we going to be able to understand infinity with our little finite minds? Of course not. Is God going to ask you to do a couple of things that you're not going to understand? Of course he is. Does that mean Christianity is blind faith, just following without any rational reason? Of course not. Christianity is not that. Christianity is not laundry lists. And I was thinking about that. Like, what is a laundry list? I'm not sure I ever had a laundry list. I have a grocery list, but not a... Well, anyway, Christianity is not a laundry list or a grocery list. Here's how that misconception works. Okay, here's what Christianity is. You kind of read through the Bible, particularly the New Testament, all the stuff Jesus said, and you make a really long list of everything that he said. And then your job is to set up little hoops of all those things he said. And Christianity is jumping through all the little hoops. And the further you get, the better Christian you are. That's not what, that's fake news. That's a complete misunderstanding of what the Bible says. Christianity is not condemning, judgmental, and hateful. But sometimes it looks that way, doesn't it? Sometimes it's portrayed that way. But Christianity is not condemning. It's not judgmental, hateful. You don't believe me? Read through the Gospels. Does Jesus come across condemning, judgmental, hateful? Who is Jesus most opposed to? The religious people. Who is he welcoming and affirming? Those that seemingly are far from God. He's not dismissing their wrongdoing. But he's not condemning, judgmental, and hateful either. But that's our rep, friends. That's our rep. And sometimes that reputation is deserved. That's misinformation. That's fake news. So what we're going to do today, we're going to take the rest of our time together and we're going to say, we're going to answer the question, so what is Christianity? When all is boiled away, what's the essence of Christianity? And whether you've heard this and know this, you know, all of your life and you know it in great detail or whether you've never heard it before... This is a really good education. This is what you need to know. Because we live in a world of fake news and misinformation. Here's the essence. We can say it in two words. Let me say it like this. Christianity is all about proxy reunion. You got it? Now, now we can close in prayer. Now what the heck is proxy reunion? Well, those of you who kind of know, um, all I did was a little thesaurus work. 
uh, to come up with a new word, two new words. What is a proxy? Proxy is someone who has the authority to work on your behalf. Your proxy is someone who stands in your stead. Your proxy is someone who can conduct affairs in your name. So we have power of attorney. You can have a proxy vote. This is the season of proxy, when all the proxy statements are given. That's why it was in my head. So what is Christianity? It's all about someone else working on our behalf. It's about a proxy. But what else is it about? It's about reunion. You see, sometimes we take all of these religious words and we kind of compartmentalize them to church and we think, oh yeah, but that word really doesn't have anything to do with the rest of my life. But you all know what reunion is, right? Some of you go through the pain and the shame and the labor of family reunions. You do that? I thank my parents regularly that they never set up a family reunion because I never have to go. Some of you go regularly. Some of you have presidents of the family reunion. You have treasurers and secretaries. <laughs> thank God I'm not. What's a reunion? You're getting together, right? So what is Christianity all about? It's about someone working in your behalf Someone representing you to bring about connection where there was disruption. To bring about reunion where there was separation. Someone else working in your behalf to bring about a reunion with someone that you were disconnected from. That's what Christianity is all about. Now the technical words are substitutionary atonement. That's what it's about. Now, don't get scared of those words. What do the words mean? Proxy reunion. That's what they mean. Substitutionary. All that means is someone working in your behalf. How many of you watched the Villanova game Monday night? The substitute was the MVP of the game, right? Dante DiVincenzo was a bench rider until Jay Wright put him in as a substitute and the substitute scored 31 points and was the MVP of the playoffs, and he was a substitute. He didn't start. He was a substitute for someone else who started. We know what a substitute is, right? Um, the way Major League Baseball goes these days. How many relievers pitch a game? Oh, my God. Pretty soon you're going to have like eight players and 20 pitchers on a team, right? And our new coach, he would, or our new manager, he'd go through them all like by the fifth inning. Uh, but as we know what a substitute is. Someone who works in your behalf. As your substitute is your proxy. Someone who has authority to work on your behalf. Someone who's in your place, in your stead. That's what Christianity is all about, substitute. But then you got this really religious word, atonement. What, what the heck is atonement? Well, atonement is all about reunion. Now, I know when I say atonement, you all think of church, right? Because where else do you hear that word? You hear it at church, right? Maybe you don't hear it in church too often. But atonement is actually a relational word. It means bringing two parties that were estranged back together. So let me give you an example or so. Suppose that during one of our many snowstorms, and let's pray they're all finished by now, right? But suppose during one of those snowstorms followed by great gusts of wind that you lost your electricity. And you're really ticked off at PP&L or Pico because they took their darn good old time getting your electricity back on. 
And so you lived, and it was cold, right? And you lived, and it was out without lights. And how could you charge your cell phone? How are you supposed to watch cable? You can't do anything, right? Life falls apart. And so you spend your time going to the grocery store to charge your phone, spend your time getting a shower at the gym. You know what it's like, right? Um, and so you're really ticked off because PP&L didn't get your lights on quick enough after the snowstorm. But you're going to show them. You're going to show them by not paying your bill. So a month, uh, you're not paying that month, and you're not paying. Well, they start sending you love letters, right? And they start out kind of, don't ask me how I know. They start sending you notes, and they start out like this. Dear customer, you probably overlooked your bill that came recently, and since you don't have kind of automatic payment set up, we're sending this letter as a kind, gentle little reminder to please forward your payment for your electric bill. Second month, it's ratcheted up a little bit. By the time it's been like four months, hey, jerk, submit payment or you're going to live in the dark, all right? Well, so you're showing them by not paying your bill. Well, if you choose to not pay your bill long enough, eventually your lights go out and you don't get to charge your phone or watch cable at all. What has to be done? Well, reunion. You have to come back together. There has to be atonement. There has to be payment for that. And so you then, eventually, because, you know, your wife's really on your case and the kids are complaining too much and you haven't bathed in six weeks, and you eventually send them a check or you forward the money. And when you do that, how do you know that they accepted your check? How do you know? The lights come on. That's atonement. That's atonement. So atonement is the bill was paid. A couple weeks ago, I told you about watching Philadelphia Parking Authority. Have any of you watched that since then? I did a little work on parking, Philadelphia Parking Authority, too. Um, how many tickets do you need in order to have your car booted? Do you know? You need six unpaid parking tickets to have your car booted. But usually they don't, they don't boot your car until you have dozens of unpaid parking tickets. And there are some people that have actually racked up thousands of dollars of parking tickets. Well, eventually you get a boot on your car. The boot on your car means you're not able to drive that car unless you want to kind of rip everything out and then it's not going to work at all. How do you know that atonement or payment has been made? Because they take the boot off your car and now you can drive. I read an interesting article yesterday. Um, Pennsylvania has a major problem. The Pen Pennsylvania Turnpike System, have you seen this? Ever since we're moving toward, you know, where everybody's using EasyPass now, most payments are made by EasyPass, people choose to not have an EasyPass, you know, little thing. But they go through the easy pass lanes thinking that they're never going to be charged. Well, technology is an interesting little deal. As you run through, without your little easy pass thingy, as you run through the easy pass lane, they get a nice clear picture of your license plate. And if they have your license plate, they therefore know your name and your address, everybody who's their car is registered to. Do you know there are people in Pennsylvania that have over 25 thousand dollars worth of easy pass payments that they chose not to pay they are now working on having them pro prosecuted and th those crimes prosecuted as felonies right how do you get rid of that you pay your bill atonement means you're paying the bill it's being paid so how how does that work this is pretty radically unique see christianity is radically unique you understand those two words right proxy reunion substitutionary atonement this is a radically unique idea we're used to going through life in the normal way. We're not used to somebody paying our way. We're not used to a substitute coming and making the payment. We're used to doing it ourselves. In fact, 
our ego gets involved, right? I don't want you paying my thing. I don't want you doing that. I'll do it myself. I don't want, I don't, I don't want a free gift. I don't need a handout. I'll do it myself. Yeah, and so that mentality is bred deeply into us. Here's how religion works. Religion says like this. I have to make atonement. Religion is all about self-atonement for all your wrongdoings. So all the debt that you incurred, the $25,000 worth of tolls you owe, if you're going to follow the religious practice, you need to come up with the twenty-five dollars to pay that bill. If you've got the boot on your car and you're going to follow the religious model, you've got to come up with all the payments plus penalties in order to get the boot removed from your car. If you're going to follow the religious model, you need to go to your bank account or earn extra money so you can pay your electric bill to get your lights back on. Religion follows the self-atonement, self-reunion model. Now, religions can be very different. But make no mistake, every religion follows the self-atonement model. Everyone. Now, the hoops are different. The payment is different. The rituals are different. Sometimes you have to give money. Sometimes you have to burn candles. Sometimes you have to, you know, do penance. Sometimes you have to do this. You have to go on a pilgrimage. All of the doing is different, but it all comes down to somebody's got to pay, and you're the one that has to pay. That's how all religion works. Christianity is radically different, right? Christianity, proxy reunion? In Christianity, God has arranged someone else to pay your debt. In, Christi in the Christian scheme, God has arranged someone else to pay your electric bill. Somebody else to pay your parking tickets and penalties. Someone else to pay your Pennsylvania Turnpike fine. That's what makes Christianity different. Christianity is Jesus' atonement. It's proxy. In Christianity, Jesus is our proxy. He's our substitute, and he's the one that makes the payment. Now, here's where religion and Christianity are all similar. Everybody understands that we've got a problem. Now, I know sometimes you don't admit it. When you go on a talk show, you probably won't admit it, right? But in the soberness of your own heart, when you're lying in bed at night or up early in the morning or when you've got caught doing your last nasty thing, right? In the quietness of that moment, you know you're a mess. Do you think it's by accident that the largest section in Amazon, in any bookstore, in anywhere you, the largest section is the self-help section? Self-help is religion, right? I've got to fix this thing. I've got to work on this. What does Christianity say? You can't fix it. I can prove to you, you know you have a problem that you can't fix. Um, I'm going to take a little bit of a risk here, right? So I'm going to ask you to answer honestly. How many of you have one or two things, a couple problems in your life, something that you would like to change? Raise your hand. Anybody have something you want to change? All right, good. A few of you have your acts all together. That's good. Please come to 218 afterward because I have a few questions for you. <laughs> now, here, here's the really strange thing. I have the sneaking suspicion that if I would have asked you that same question, like two years ago, you would have raised your hand, and I'd be willing to bet most of us have the same problems in mind when we raised our hand. How come you haven't worked on it until you, how come you haven't fixed it? You read the self-help book, right? You went to the seminar. You tried hard. You know, you did, how come you didn't fix it? Why? Because you can't fix it. You need a proxy. You need a substitute. That's the problem. When you try to fix, you don't have the smarts, the strength, the skill to fix your life. 
at least we need to get honest and say that sooner rather than later. Now, here's what I want to do. For the rest of our time together, I want to walk through the whole Bible. And some of you are probably thinking, Charles, you should have started that part a long time ago. I'm, I'm, I'm going to miss dinner now. The Masters is over at 7. Now, I, I'm going to try to do it quickly. In the past, we've kind of broken the Bible into six acts, remember? And so in the beginning, God creates and God is rejected. God promises, God appears, God sends, God concludes, right? God restores. That, that's kind of the big story. There, there are different ways to study and look at the Bible. You can take a particular passage or section of the Bible and kind of read it and dissect it and work on it. And we do that most of the time. There are other ways to look at the Bible. And that is you can take a theme, you can take an idea, and you can kind of run it through the Bible and see how it develops. See, see how as the Bible grows, the idea is growing and developing. So what I want to do is to take that proxy reunion, substitutionary atonement idea, and show you that's not a concept tucked away just one or two places in the Bible. That is the thread that holds the whole Bible together. So you got to hang in there. This would be, it'd be good for you to kind of write these references down, check out the bigger passages. We're not going to be able to read them. you got to trust me as I tell you kind of what's happening. So we're going to walk through the Bible, look at the big theme, and we're going to see that this is repeatedly portrayed. Well, the first time that this theme appears is all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. All the way back in Genesis. Now, let me tell you what's happened. It's easy, but God creates everything in 1 and 2. And then in chapter 3, God gets rejected. Now, here's how it works. God makes everything that there is in Genesis 1 and 2. And then he says to Adam and Eve, right, that he makes them too. He makes it, hey, uh, I made all this stuff for you. Enjoy yourselves. Look, you've got a happy little garden to be in, you know. And enjoy life. Oh, by the way, one more thing. Just one thing. There's this one tree over here in the middle of the garden. Don't eat from that tree. There are hundreds and hundreds of other trees. Eat all that stuff, right? Eat the leaves, eat the fruit, eat the nuts, eat anything you want. But there's one tree over here. Don't eat from that tree. Got it? Got it. Hundreds, thousands of trees. Eat all that stuff. Don't eat from this tree. Got it. Got it. But they didn't get it for long. Because soon after that, the woman eats, then he eats, and like all hell breaks loose. And one of the things that happens instantaneously in Genesis chapter, instantaneously, they eat and immediately they sense their guilt and their shame. And that's pictured by immediately they want to cover from each other, right? And if you don't believe that's true, here's what I'd say to you. You would not want, you would quiver in fear if everybody in your row knew some things about you, right? I'd certainly quiver in fear if you knew stuff about me. Uh, somebody say, Charles, we can just guess. <laughs> but you don't know. It's just a guess. Uh, so, but we don't, we don't want to be known, right? Because we're, we're kind of guilty and shameful. But think about that. Before they ate, they're kind of open and honest with each other. All of a sudden, they, oh, that are hiding from each other. God shows up and says, hey, guys, well, I notice we're wearing some fig leaves here. Uh, what's up? Adam says, well, God, uh, you told us not to eat from that tree, and I was doing really well. But that woman you gave me, she twisted my arm, run, she put it under my nose, she baked it. I, I couldn't say no, and I ate it. Eve, is that true? Well, God, let me tell you, you're the one that let that snake in the garden here. If you would have kept him out, you know, there are pest control things. If you would have kept him out, I wouldn't have eaten. You know how the end of chapter 3 works? 
in my mind, God turns from Adam and Eve and he walks away. And of course he's disappointed. They rebelled. They told him to do something. They didn't do it. He walks away. He's disappointed. And as he walks away, he takes an animal. And right in front of Adam and Eve, he kills the animal. Up until that point, there is no recorded death in the Bible. The animal's squealing, bleeding, dying. God takes the leather from the animal, and he comes over and he says, here you go. This is a whole lot better clothing than what you've made for yourselves. I will cover your sin and your shame. That's Genesis 3, right? Notice, substitutionary atonement, proxy reunion, their guilt covered, the innocent paying for the guilt, all the way back in Genesis 3. Let's fast forward a little bit. We come to the book of Exodus. And this is all about Passover. So you can read Exodus 12 about Passover. Here's what's going on. The Israelites by now have become numerous, right? Thousands and thousands of them. And they're living in Egypt and they're living as slaves. But judgment, rebellion, violence, all that nasty stuff is getting higher and higher and higher. And God, you know, and God is a patient, long-suffering God, the Bible tells us. But let me tell you this. He's not eternally patient. He's not eternally long-suffering. Every once in a while God says, oh, judgment time. And so in Egypt, over Egypt, God says, judgment time. The rebellion, the violence, the hatred, the cruelty, all that stuff, it ends. It ends. Judgment time. So here's the judgment. The firstborn in every family that's guilty is going to die. But here's the problem. The Egyptians were certainly guilty, right? They're, they're nasty and they're violent and cruel. Were the Israelites perfectly righteous and pure? Oh, heck no. So... So if judgment's coming, it's coming to Israel as well as coming to Egypt, right? I mean, if God's going to judge, God's an equal opportunity judger. And so if he says judgment's coming, you're not excluded just because, you know, you have a certain color hair, a certain eye color, a certain complexion. When judgment comes, judgment's coming. But God says, oh, you got an opportunity, though. Here's the plan. If you uh, take a little lamb and you kill the lamb and take some of the blood and paint your house with it, paint the little door frame. Um, when the angel of judgment comes through, the angel will say, up, oh, something already died in that house, and he will pass over that house. But if the angel comes to a house where there's no blood, he'll say, oh, nobody died here, judgment, and he'll go in and bring judgment to the firstborn, right? The Egyptians heard the message, and they said, oh, we don't believe in that God. We don't think that's true. So they didn't, take, they didn't kill any lambs or paint any doorposts. The Israelites said, oh, we know this God. We know he's loving and beneficial. We know he's kind. In fact, he's providing an opportunity for us to get out. But yeah, but judgment also comes. You know what? And here's what I picture. A little six-year-old son walking with his dad out behind the house. And the dad has a knife in the sheath next to him. And he takes a little lamb and he takes the knife out. And the little boy, dad, what are you doing? His dad says, well, son, you don't understand. If the lamb dies, you live. If the lamb lives, you die. I choose you. And in every home where a lamb died and the blood was painted around the door, the angel of judgment passed over because there already was a death. But the homes without the blood painted, 
the angel entered and brought judgment. And what's the message? Sin is serious. But the innocent can die for the guilty. Proxy reunion, substitute atonement. That's how it works. Then you come to another weird section in Leviticus. Leviticus is kind of a good book. Because um, Leviticus is all about how the temple operates. This passage, this chapter is all about the Day of Atonement. Day of Atonement, um, I don't like the lamb part. I like the goat part. There are two goats in the Day of Atonement. You know how the goats were? Here's how the goats were. Uh, two of them. First goat comes in. The first goat is offered as a sacrifice and a blood. The high priest goes in the holy host. But then there's this other goat. And the second goat isn't killed. The second goat's called the scapegoat. We still use that language, right? Scapegoat. And uh, what happens to the scapegoat? Well, the high priest goes over to the scapegoat, puts his hand on its head, hands on his head. Symbolically, his sin, his, all of his wrongdoing, is now kind of transferred to the scapegoat. Now, the scapegoat is kind of bearing all the burden. I mean, the scapegoat really didn't do all that wrongdoing, but, you know, the wrongdoing was transferred to the scapegoat. Then somebody comes and takes the scapegoat to the edge of the camp. And they kind of let him go and smack his rear end. And the scapegoat then runs into the desert. And that's where we get a lot of that biblical imagery. As far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed our sins from us. As the scapegoat ran away with all of your sin in itself, so your sins are taken away. Not just a sacrifice, but now your sin is taken away. Notice, sin is serious. But a substitute can pay. A substitute can somehow take your wrongdoing and pay the price by being separated from the camp, separated from community, separated from God's presence. But you can remain. Even though you're guilty, you can stay in community and in God's presence. How does that work? Sin is serious. But the innocent can pay for the guilty. A substitute can bring reunion. That's all over. And then you come to the book of Isaiah. And Isaiah is, is kind of a, an interesting book. The first half of Isaiah is all about the coming Messiah. And here's something we have to do, right? So we have to do this fairly frequently. You have to kind of unlearn before you learn. When I say the word Messiah, almost all of you think of a suffering Savior. That's not what, I mean, Jesus did that. But the word Messiah in Isaiah's day, that meant conquering, ruling king. Messiah meant king. So the whole first half of Isaiah is about this king that comes and the king's going to bring God's retribution and judgment and justice. When the king shows up, everything's going to be made right. That's the first half. Then in the second half of Isaiah, we're introduced to this other character. The Messiah is going to be the suffering servant. Huh? And there were a lot of people in Jesus' day actually waiting for two messiahs. They were waiting for the king one to kind of ride in and win the day. And we're also kind of waiting for uh, the suffering one to come and pay the price. And one of those suffering servant songs in Isaiah is maybe the most famous. And we read this. Think substitute. Think proxy reunion. <laughs> and look at Isaiah 53. But he was pierced for our transgressions. Wait a minute. My transgressions, but he got pierced. He was crushed. He but for my iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. 